0: You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I have my Diet Coke and my CGM by my side. Life is good, says Dr. Aaron Kowalski. Closing the loop, the holy grail of diabetes management. Are we there yet? Join me at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlaine. Dr. Tamerlane is Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale School of Medicine. He is director of the Children's Diabetes Program, deputy director of the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation, and is the 2006 recipient of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Excellence in Clinical Research Award. Today we are discussing the artificial pancreas in the management of type 1 diabetes. Hi, Dr. Tamburlain. Thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Yeah, hi, Bill. Nice to talk to you again.
0: It's a pleasure since medical school. Only 35 years have passed, and I assume a lot has changed in the management of diabetes.
1: Well, it certainly has, actually. When I give talks about diabetes, I often point out that I started my career during the bad old days of diabetes when we were limited to treating children with diabetes with one or two shots of insulin a day and trying to estimate how well we were doing based on urine glucose testing. As, as we now know, this was even worse than we
0: thought back then. Today, you're clinically involved in the development of the artificial pancreas. What is meant by the artificial pancreas? What will it do? And when they talk about a closed-loop system, what does that mean?
1: The ultimate idea is to replace insulin in a patient with type 1 diabetes who doesn't make any insulin in a way that the beta cell would normally secrete insulin and that actually could be done in two uh, you know two broad ways to uh, do this is to actually replace beta cells with either islet or pancreatic transplantation an alternative approach is to use a mechanical device to infuse insulin in a much more physiologic manner and the key point there is that the insulin that is administered is administered in direct uh, response to changes in plasma glucose currently we use what's called open loop systems in which the patient retrospectively sees how the blood sugar has been going, estimates how much carbohydrate he or she is going to eat, and then takes a the best guess on how much insulin that's going to, that she, he or she will need. Obviously, there's all kinds of problems with this, even in the best control patients. This approach to replacing insulin is not ideal, and it uh, also fails to take into consideration things like falling glucoses because of exercise and uh, what may happen to the patient's blood sugar at night when they're sleeping and not aware of what's happening to the blood glucose. So that's called open loop. Closed loop is actually just uh, like many other endocrine systems, as well as the beta cell, is to infuse insulin in direct proportion to what's happening to the blood sugar values. Not only where it is, but how fast it's changing. And that's basically closed-loop and artificial pancreas are synonymous.
0: So a closed-loop system would have a sensor for monitoring the glucose, the insulin pump, and is there anything else in that system?
1: Right. Well, then it's the computer program, or what's commonly called computer algorithm, that analyzes the glucose data with respect to... Uh, you know, how high the plasma glucose level is and in what direction and what speed the glucose levels are changing and varies the infusion rate by the pump based on that computer program.
0: How good are the sensors at this point and how rapidly can they measure changes in the glucose levels?
1: Well, the sensors are not perfect. They're not quite where current, you know, standard blood glucose meters are. We've had self-monitoring of blood glucose with finger sticks and now alternate site testing for over 25 years. And during those 25 years, there's been considerable advancement in the technology to produce glucose strips that are highly accurate and precise. And the manufacturing is such that the company can tell you exactly what it's going to read for any uh, plasma glucose concentrations. The sensor technology isn't quite there yet yet. There's a lot of um, still hands-on manufacturing issues that do not lend themselves to precision so that when a patient puts in a sensor, they actually have to calibrate the sensor to adjust its performance to what the actual blood sugar is. So it's not there yet, but it's getting there. Sensors now in just a few years are considerably more accurate than when the uh, first uh, generation of sensors came out. But they're still in the range of 12 to 16% error one way or the other.
0: Are you getting enough industry support to develop these better sensors?
1: It's all really industry-driven. I've been around this business for a long time and remember even serving on the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation grant review board, getting grants from people who were going to build either insulin pumps or sensors in their garage. If we depended on that, this field would not move forward the real advancement in hardware is going to come out of industry. How we apply that and how we demonstrate that this is beneficial to patients will depend on clinical investigators and clinicians.
0: I'd like to come back to that in a moment. But for those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me is Dr. William Tamberlane, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale School of Medicine. With the pumps today, are any of them commercially available or what are the current status of the research studies underway?
1: You know, we've had decades of experience now in using external insulin pumps that infuse insulin in the subcut- you know, subcutaneously. And those pumps have gotten better and better over the years. And actually, in our preliminary studies, those are the pumps that we're, that we're using. Secondly, the external glucose sensors, as I said, have been around now for five or six years, and their accuracy is such that they're at a point where they could be employed in in a closed-loop system. For the first generation or first iteration of an artificial pancreas, we do have the tools to do that. Now, it, this may not be the ultimate answer where you have an external pump and an external sensor. One could argue that a fully implanted system that had a sensor that was somehow inserted into the vascular space, so it could measure rapid changes in plasma glucose, and then infused insulin right into a blood vessel would be the holy grail of this type of endeavor. Nevertheless, it's our strong contention that we don't have to have a perfect system right now, that a closed-loop system... Can accommodate some input from the patient as they, you know, live their lives with diabetes. It doesn't have to be f- totally automatic. That it, there can be input from the patients, and that there are tremendous practical advantages of the current methods of external subcutaneous infusion and transcutaneous measurement of interstitial glucose in the subcutaneous space.
0: Can you give some specific examples of the advantages and the benefits that you've seen in your center?
1: The technology is. Certainly they're in pumps and, and pretty much they're in sensors. And both have been used by patients for, for long periods of time. Certainly the pumps for, you know, again, years and years. The idea of implanting a pump, the pump certainly takes a surgical procedure. An implanted pump is susceptible to obstruction of the pumping chamber due to precipitation of insulin in the pumping mechanism. You have to have a catheter coming out of the pump, which current implanted systems actually infuse insulin into the peritoneum rather than into a blood vessel. Those catheters can be clogged, although there are methods of trying to unclog the catheters without having to replace the pumps. The refill procedure is complicated and requires almost a uh, surgical gowning and masking and using um, aseptic techniques to make sure that the system doesn't get infected. So there's a lot of technical problems. As far as putting a sensor into a blood vessel, you obviously don't want to have to replace the sensor very often. You'd like to get at least 12 months out of a sensor. And again, it would have to be taken out and replaced. And actually, to provide the sensor with enough enzyme to measure glucose for twelve months actually slows down some of the performance of the sensor. So so you lose some of the advantages of being in in the blood vessel rather than measuring where you measured plasma glucose directly then as opposed to the current methods which look at interstitial glucose. The can you know, one of the critiques there is that there's a delay in transfer of glucose from the capillary into the interstitial space and that leads to some problems with the sensor accuracy. On the other hand, you don't overcome all those problems putting in a overloaded sensor with glucose oxidase enzyme into a blood vessel.
0: In this process of development, are there things that just sort of want to make you pull your hair out that just drive you up the wall with frustration?
1: Absolutely. I think this is a bit like deja vu. I, you know, I tell my children that I invented insulin pump therapy. So, our original insulin pump studies were. F- actually initiated in 1978. Mm -hmm. We didn't actually make the pump. It actually was made by a company called Auto Syringe, and it was a pump that was intended to give any kind of medicine around the clock. It just occurred to us that this would be a, a great way to give insulin, which also was not a totally novel idea, although there was didn't seem to be the same kind of layers of regulatory uh, uh, hurdles that you have to get through them to go from one study to the next. We actually did one relatively short study and and then a longer two-week inpatient study with uh, open-loop, you know, CSII, we call it, continuous subcutaneous infusion. Then we, we went right ahead and started treating people at home. Now it's taken us several months to get through both the FDA and you know, our corporate partners. We've been doing these studies with Medtronic Diabetes to get through their legal offices, to get through our IRBs and things. It 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 is a much more difficult path. But of course, the reason for that is to make sure that we protect patients.
0: To quote you, are we ready for the retirement dinner for syringes and the pens?
1: So yes, we want a retirement. Uh, well, I think not quite yet. But again, in in particularly in children, we've been moving people. There's much uh, more widespread use of insulin pump therapy. For example, in our clinic, over 70% of our patients are using pumps, not using injection therapy. And, and a good proportion of the kids who are using injection therapy are the ones that are just relatively recently been diagnosed. And we still start kids on pens and, and syringes so they understand what that's about. And Most of the kids go through a honeymoon period. So it they can be treated with relatively simple injection regimens, and then when it becomes a little more difficult, we routinely will switch those patients over to pump. So at the very least, for many patients, we are moving in that direction, I think that's the, that's the direction of technology.
0: Practicing pediatricians are a significant part of our audience, and patients often come into our office and they say, I just want to run something by you before making major medical decisions. How should a physician, how should I advise a patient regarding injection therapy, pump, or the artificial pancreas?
1: First of all, I mean, there is no just, there's no one way that, you know, for patients to treat their diabetes. So we're very strong proponents of use of pump therapy because we think it has lots of advantages and most of those advantages make, should make life simpler for patients.
0: I want to thank Dr. William Tamberlaine, who has been our guest and we have been discussing the artificial pancreas. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.